All right. Hey, welcome to Grace. And if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and grab them at this time and turn with me to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So it's pretty easy to find. The very first book right at the beginning of your Bible, the book of Genesis. And we will be spending some time this morning in chapter 34 of the book of Genesis. Typically, we have most of the scripture that we will be going over on the screen. But today, because of the large amount of scripture that we're going to try to cover, it won't be up on the screen. And so it's important for you to grab a Bible. So if you don't have your own Bible, there should be some pew, uh, some pew Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those and turn to page 28. Genesis chapter 34 is where we're going to be today. We're going to start a new series uh, five or six weeks before uh, the Good Friday and Easter sermon and service that we'll be having six weeks, and we will be studying the life of Joseph. Certainly not uh, extensively, certainly, certainly not uh, everything that we can discover from it, but hopefully we'll cover all of the major aspects and all of the major movements and uh, learn some life lessons. And so I've entitled the sermon series, Joseph, Life Lessons from the Life of Joseph. So hopefully we'll be learning some very practical life lessons as we see God move in the midst of tragedy and heartache and promotion and glory in the life of this most unique man in the Bible by the name of Joseph. And so life lessons from the life of Joseph. Please uh, turn with me again, chapter 34. I trust that you're there now in the book of Genesis. So let's pray and then we'll dive right into our time in the word together. So if you would pray with me just one more time, please. Father, we do uh, ask your blessing on this time. Father, I pray for those who hear your word, uh, including myself, that we would be attentive hearers, that we would have eyes to see the glory of who you are and what you've done and what you want to do in our hearts and our lives. And I pray that we would have hearts that are soft towards your word. Father, that we would be uh, quick to repent if there's sin in our hearts and lives, that we would be quick to learn if there are lessons that we need to learn, that we would be quick to change if, if there are changes in our parenting or in our lifestyle that need to be changed. And I pray above all that you would be glorified, that you you would be honored. Thank you for this man. Thank you for the life of Joseph, one of the patriarchs, and he is such an example to us in many, many ways, in the ups and the downs of his life, and he had many more downs than ups. He was faithful. He forgave. He was not bitter, and he endured in righteousness and in godly living, and you blessed him, and you prospered him, and there is much that you want us to learn, in particular this morning now as we look uh, a little bit at, at his life before, his family, his upbringing, his brothers, and the the father uh, that was his by the name of Jacob. I pray that you would help us this morning in particular to see what it is that we have to, to see from his upbringing, from his uh, life and, uh, and beyond. And so give grace to us, give grace to me that I might speak words that are helpful, words that are truthful, uh, words that are biblical and accurate, and words that are encouraging and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so come now, Holy Spirit, speak to your people through your word, and may the good news of Jesus Christ be exalted. It's in his name that we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. I want to begin uh, our sermon today just with a, a short game. It should be a pretty easy game to play, um, and, and it, it's the game, what do, what do these have in common? And so I'm going to show uh, several slides here, different names of movies. And so I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with certain movies, but we're going to show a, a list of, of a few movies, titles, and I want you to think, what do they all have in common? Because it's, it'll be hopefully a fitting introduction to our sermon this morning. So let's look at the first one. The first movie is what? The Hobbit, right? This is one that has recently come out. I've not seen it. I really enjoy uh, the, the, the trilogy that was before, and I'm anticipating the trilogy that has come out. And so this is The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. So don't, if you've seen it, 
Don't tell me what happens, okay? Uh, so that's the first movie, The Hobbit. What about the next one? How about this one? You notice this one? Have you seen this one before? Star Wars, episode one. The what? Anybody know? The Phantom Menace. If you're Star Wars fans like I am, uh, you've seen this one numerous times. Just by my movie taste here, I'm not sure what you think of me, but I'm kind of a dork. You know, I like The Hobbit and I like Star Wars. Star Wars, episode one. Okay, here's, here's another one. What do you think about this one? Star Trek. What's the name of this one? You know, Star Trek... The Future Begins, that's the title to uh, this movie, Star Trek, The Future Begins, came out just a few years ago. Uh, I've got one more here, Uh, actually a couple more. How about this one? What's this one? You recognize that? Of course, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. And then the last one is this. What's this one? Do you recognize it? It's actually X-Men, and the movie title is called First Class. X-Men, first class. Okay, we can move on beyond that. And so have you got the common theme? What, what is it that ties all of these movies together? You can shout out and be, feel free to be wrong. What are they? Say it again. First of many. Thank you, bud. And thank you, Dennis. They are the first of many. Yes, the technical term I think that I, I want us to see is they are prequels. Have you heard that term? They're prequels. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but most of these movies are, are fairly, fairly recent, at least within the past, I would say, five years. And if you keep up with movies, what you've noticed, as I have noticed, is that uh, prequels have kind of been all the rage in Hollywood. Essentially, what a prequel is, is it takes an existing movie or, or a series of movies, and it tells you the story before the story, right? It takes you back so that you can see the origins, so that you can see the background, so that you can see how the characters came to be, so that you can see how the characters developed their personalities, their traits, their situations, their scenarios. And so it's a story before the story. It's a prequel. And so what we're going to do this morning is take a look at the life of Joseph. I've called it the prequel. It's the prequel to the life of Joseph. If you're reading the, the book of Genesis, you'll find out that formally the story of Joseph starts in Genesis chapter 37. So that's where we're going to spend most of our time is in chapter 37 on through chapter 50. But, but, there is a very interesting story behind the story. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see Joseph, the prequel, and we're going to summarize, we're going to look at large chunks of scripture. I'm going to do my best to summarize certain stories. And I think a lot of the stories we're going to look at this morning, you'll be pretty familiar with. But if you look at Genesis 29, you don't have to go there, but starting in Genesis 29 and running through Genesis 36, you essentially have the story before the story. You find out all about Joseph's background. And so I think this will be really interesting. How did Joseph get in the scenario uh, that he does in Genesis 37? Uh, how does the, uh, the background, how does the antagonism that he'll feel from his brothers, where did that come from? What kind of family life, what kind of family dynamic did he have? What was his dad like? What was his mom like? What was his mom's sister, who is also his dad's wife, like? He has a fascinating background, and so what we're going to do this morning is see Joseph, the prequel. And so there's basically a couple main sections. You can jot these down if you're taking notes. A couple main sections to the sermon. Uh, Starting in Genesis verse uh, 31 in chapter 29, and then running through, oh, about midway through chapter 30, what I've entitled that section is Joseph's brothers. And so we're going to see a little bit about Joseph's mom, Joseph's dad, and then how he got his brothers— 
And then, starting in verse 25 of chapter 30, and running all the way through chapter 36, you get uh, what I'll call Joseph's background. That is, you see a little bit more about his family dynamics, not only who his brothers were and how he got them, but how did they interact with one another? What was the family dynamic in this patriarchal family? It was very interesting. It was very interesting, to say the least. And so let's take a look now, starting in Genesis 29, verse 31, running through chapter 30, verse 24, at Joseph's brothers. That is, how did he come? to be. So, starting in chapter 29, you don't have to go there, you can if you want. Starting in chapter 29, the story of Joseph's life begins with his dad. The story of Joseph's life begins with his dad and his mom. Now, his mom's name was what? Anybody remember? Rachel. His mom's name was Rachel, and it all begins in Genesis chapter 29. You likely know the story. There are a couple main things, and so starting in chapter 29 and through the first 30 verses, essentially, you have the story of how his dad, whose name was Jacob, is tricked into marrying two sisters. Now, you may remember the story, right? You have, uh, jo- you have Jacob, and he's running from his brother. Uh, he's running for his life, and he ends up uh, meeting his uncle Laban. And when he meets his uncle Laban, to make a long story short, he sees a young woman. And he sees this young woman, and her name is Rachel. And he falls in love with Rachel. It's like love at first sight. Oh, I have to have her, right? He's infatuated with Rachel. And so, long story short, he makes a deal with her, her dad, his uncle Laban. And he says, I'll work seven years if you give me this gal. So he does that, right? And the time comes for the wedding. And you're probably familiar with the story and the deception that happens. In fact, as we go through this story and the subsequent story of the life of Joseph, one of the major themes that we're going to find out is that there is deception. There are lies all over the place. And it begins with his uncle. Because remember what happened? It's the wedding night. Uh, They go into the wedding chamber, right? That is his dad, Jacob. And he thinks that he's going to and has married who? Rachel, right? Well, his father Laban is a bit of a trickster, just like Jacob is. And what does he do? He pulls the old switcheroo, doesn't it? Now, I'm not exactly sure how that happened. We can talk about that later. But on the wedding night, he sends in not the younger daughter, Rachel. He sends in who? The older daughter, Leah. Now, Leah goes in. uh, They consummate the marriage. The next morning rolls around, and I can just imagine it in my mind. Jacob, oh, oh, hi, honey. Honey, (laughs) and it's not his wife. It's his wife's sister. He has been duped into marrying the older girl, Leah, first, whom he does not love. To make a long story short, what happens after that is he makes an agreement to work seven more years for Laban for the hand of the girl whom he really loves, the younger sister, Rachel. The text explicitly says towards the end of this section that he loved Rachel more. Keep that in mind. He has now how many wives? Two wives. Not God's intention. Not good. This family is starting off very much on the wrong foot because he has not one wife, but two wives. And not only that, he loves one more than he loves the other. He loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. So let me ask you a question. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of Joseph even before we go there. So here's a question for you. Do you think, do you think that Jacob's preference of Rachel, that is he loves Rachel more than Leah, will affect the kids that he will have both from Rachel and from Leah? Do you think this will have an effect on the family dynamic? Shake your head yes, church. Yes, because it will. Absolutely. What we're going to find out is that Jacob not only will favor this wife over that wife, but he will consistently favor the kids that were born to him from Rachel 
over the kids that are born to him from Leah. And that, we find in Genesis 37, is the mess that young Joseph finds himself in. And so we have the the beginning of the family, right? There's one dad and there's two moms. Not a good way to start off the family. Well, the story continues and it gets almost worse. If you look in your Bibles at Genesis 29, starting in verse 31, and then running through into chapter 30 towards the end of that chapter, what you find out is uh, there is essentially what I would call baby wars. Okay, it's, it's baby wars. That's what's going on because there is a race and a competition now between the two wives, Leah and Rachel, to see who can bore bear the most children to Jacob. And so what we find out is, is it's very sad. We find out that the, the younger, Rachel, who Jacob loves, is barren. She cannot conceive. She's uh, having trouble bearing. And that, in that culture, was a stigma upon stigmas. And so she, throughout this little section, is doing everything that she can do to f- just to bear a kid for her husband. That's what she's living for. That's what she wants. And so she's trying to do this for her husband. And yet, her sister Leah, what's her problem? Well, she's unloved. She is unloved. And so what she does is she gets it in her mind that if she bears kids to this guy, Jacob, that he will then love her. And so what you have is tension. Let me ask you this, ladies. If you were married to one guy and you had a, quote, sister wife, would there be tension in that household? Okay, you laugh because the answer is yes, most absolutely sure. This is not how God designed it to be, okay? And so there is tension between Leah and there's tension between Rachel and they kind of have baby wars to kind of one-up each other. But all of the time, all of the time, Rachel cannot have kids. And so she gets this gloriously bad idea. And she says, well, if I can't have kids... Here, 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 husband, here's my, here's my maidservant. Why don't you sleep with her and begin to have kids with her so that they'll be my kids? And Jacob, okay, you know, he does it, he follows. And essentially then the other sister, Leah, says, oh, well, if, if you're going to have kids through a servant, then I'm going to start to do that too. So she gives Jacob her servant, and he starts having kids through multiple ladies. So keep track here. How many wives does he have? Two, but he's having babies through how many ladies? Four. That is bad math, folks. This is not a good setup for this family. Well, this, to, to kind of sum it up, essentially, in the end, in the end, Leah, both through her own body and through the body of her servant, gives Jacob eight boys. And so Leah gives him eight boys in total, and Rachel gives him four boys in total, two from herself, and then two from her maidservant. Now, do you remember who is the firstborn son naturally from Rachel? Who was it? It was Joseph. Good try for God. That's, that's usually a good answer. God, that's, you know. But it's Joseph. Joseph, our main character, is the firstborn. Now listen, the firstborn son from a woman who desperately wanted to have kids, finally ends up having kids. She's favored by her husband. And the firstborn son is Joseph. The firstborn son is Joseph. We find out in her old age, in her later days, she has another son by the name of uh, Benjamin. So let me ask you another question, church. Do you think that the animosity that exists between the wives, between Rachel and between Leah, will have an effect on the way that their kids relate to one another? What do you think, church? And the answer is yes, right? What we find out as we get into the story of Joseph is that there is animosity not only between the moms, 
But there's animosity between the kids. That is, Leah's kids are in particularly antagonistic towards Rachel's kids. And remember, who do they identify as their main target? The firstborn, Joseph, right? And so we see this family upbringing that was not ideal, that was not really God's intention. And from that, we get our first life lesson. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down. This is the, the first of two life lessons, I think. It's a general statement here, but it holds true in, in the life of Joseph, excuse me, Jacob and his wives, and in, and in our life as well, and that's this. A healthy marriage is the foundation for healthy kids. A healthy marriage is the foundation for healthy kids. So let me ask you a question. Is that oftentimes how we view it? Is that oftentimes, as parents, how we view raising healthy children? I, I find in my own life, uh, sometimes it, it's, it's not quite like this. In fact, oftentimes I get it backwards. I, I, I tend to think, and I think we often think, that if we want to have healthy kids, that if we want to have healthy and strong and uh, smart and, and kids that, are, that can uh, be successful, that we need to focus on them, right? That the kids need to be the center of our lives, that we need to put all of our energy and all of our effort, they need to take priority in our life. And when that happens, when that happens, what happens to the marriage relationship? Well, it simply goes by the wayside, and it becomes not a priority. And what I've found throughout my short years as a counselor and uh, just through counseling with many students when I did youth ministry was that the healthiest, healthiest kids came from families that had the healthiest marriages. It, I, I saw it time and time again. We see it in the scripture that if your marriage is unhealthy, generally speaking, it will affect your kids. But a, a healthy marriage is the foundation for healthy kids. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to, to mom and dads, whether it be here or in Dallas, uh, they're having marriage problems. Usually it's the wife, and she comes to me, but not all the time. It can be the husband, and I can't, I, I wish I had a dime for, no, not a dime. I wish I had a thousand dollars for every time I heard. <laughs> Why do people say a dime? They might as well up the ante. I wish I had a thousand dollars for every time uh, I heard from the lips of a mom or a dad, you know what, they're having conflict with their spouse, and they say, you know what, my kids come first. My kids come first. And I think to myself, and sometimes I might be bold enough to say it, and it's showing. That's why your marriage is in shambles, because you're focusing on your kids, and your primary relationship with your spouse has not been attended to at all. And so married folks or folks that want to be married just realize that in the family dynamic, a healthy marriage is the foundation for healthy kids. I, I, this is not a boastful statement, I hope, but it, it was an encouragement to me. I, I don't do this perfectly, and neither does Shelley, but I was, I was, uh, it was nap time in my household the other day, and uh, my wife is pregnant, so she needs her naps, and so typically what happens is my little girl goes down for her afternoon nap, and then my big girl goes down for her afternoon nap, right? So my wife gets a nap. And so typically Asher, well, he doesn't take naps anymore, so I play with him. So Piper had gone down for her nap, and Shelly had just gone into her bedroom, and uh, the door was kind of cracked open, and she was getting ready to take her nap. And I said, Asher, uh, what are we going to play? Oh, okay, puzzles, whatever. And I said, okay, give me a minute, because I need to go shut mommy's door. And so he followed me, and I went, and I shut mommy's door, and I just kind of quietly, you know, creaked it and shut the door uh, because I didn't want us to wake her, right? And he made a comment to me that I was very encouraged by. He said, Dad, you are very nice to mom. And I thought, great, <laughs> you know? But what that shows me is that he notices that I'm loving my wife well, by God's grace and not all the time. But sometimes, you know, in that moment, I was loving my wife well, and it just struck me. 
he sees what I'm doing, and he sees our relationship, and he sees the primacy of that, and, and, and I want him to know that I'm going to play with you, and I'm going to have a fun time with you, but mommy has a need, and I'm going to meet it. So that's the first life lesson. A healthy marriage is the foundation for healthy kids. Let's turn now to Genesis chapter 30. In Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 25, is the beginning of a new section in the book of Genesis, and it runs all the way through chapter 36, so six some odd chapters. I'll call it Joseph's background. So what we get here is there is a myriad of events that occur. Uh, Basically, the story of Genesis turns to how Jacob, his wives, and all of his 12 sons and one daughter, which we'll see in a little bit, return to the land of promise. So remember, they're in in the land outside of the covenant land, outside of God's promised land. So they want to make their way back to the covenant land. And essentially, these six six chapters show us how that happens. Let me just give you a taste as to some of the things that happen. Uh, Jacob leaves Laban, and he leaves Laban by deception. If you recall, uh, there's deception all the way around. They try to trick each other. Eventually, they leave, and he heads back to the promised land. Uh, There's the story of Jacob wrestling with God. Remember that when an angel comes down, and they fight it out all night long. That's a crazy good story. He gets a new name. He gets a new name. Uh, After that, what we see is that he reconciles with Esau. Remember what happened with Esau? To make a long story short, he swindled Esau bad, and Esau wanted to kill him. That's why he's gone. And then he gets news that, oh, your brother Esau is coming, and there are how many? I think 400 armed men with him. And he's like, oh great, I'm going to get it, right? Uh, Long story short, he reconciles. Esau's not mad. They make good. They kiss and make up or whatever. It's good, right? They, they, They end up on good terms. So he reconciles with his brother. After that, God reveals himself to him, and he, he, he reiterates this promise that he had given to his granddaddy and to his dad, that this land would be yours and there would be a nation made from you. After that, uh, there are a couple deaths. His beloved wife, Rachel, who is whose mom? Joseph, right? Joseph's mom. She passes away, and so that's a sad event. And then also his father dies. That is Isaac, passes away. So that's, in short, what happens in this little section, but I skipped a significant section, and so we're going to spend the remainder of our time in Genesis chapter 34. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 34, because I believe, in my humble opinion, There's one event that I think most highlights, that most reveals the family background in the family dynamic that Joseph grew up in. And it's significant because the dynamic that he grew up in, we will not see him taking on. He will be very different than his brothers. He will be very different than his dad and his uncle. And it's significant. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 34. Essentially, uh, this one incident occurs as Jacob and his family arrive into the promised land. So they're coming into the promised land and they settle uh, down. They settle down in the city or near the city of Shechem. So this event happens near the city of Shechem and it leads us to our second life lesson. So if you're taking notes, jot this down and then we're gonna see four, four more points. But here's the general principle. If a healthy marriage is the foundation for healthy kids, then I think uh, somewhat the opposite is true, is that unhealthy parenting is the facilitator for unhealthy kids. Unhealthy parenting is the facilitator for unhealthy kids. So what I want us to see, there is so much that we could talk about in this chapter. I just want to make four points, okay? So jot down these four points, these four characteristics that I, in my humble opinion, see as unhealthy parenting from Joseph's family, in particular from his dad. Dads, fathers, this is a challenge to us. It's been a challenge to me as I look at Jacob, his faults, his failures, his successes, 
but certainly here his uh, lack, uh, less than ideal parenting. So let's take a look then at verse 1 in chapter 34. Running through chapter uh, verse 12, we see the first characteristic of unhealthy parenting is passive. Passive parenting, that is passivity. And we read it starting in verse 1, and let's read together in your Bibles 1 through 12. So let's read this together. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. Okay, just, just to note, who is Dinah? That's the one daughter from Leah, right? So just keep, keep in mind, this is the daughter to all of these 12 boys. Uh, sister, excuse me. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, that is a man, when Shechem, son of, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock. Notice, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as they had, uh, come in, had come in from the field, and as soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and they were furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, my, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourself. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift that I am to bring as great as you like, and I will pay whatever you ask of me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. So we're going to see our first couple points about parenting from these 12 verses. And the first one is that of passive parenting. Uh, Notice, did you notice when we read the text, the difference between Jacob's response— to the event, and his son's response. Did you notice? There is a contrast there. He was altogether passive. It doesn't say that he got angry. It doesn't say that he was sad. It doesn't say that he was frustrated. He was just indifferent, for lack of a better word. He was passive until what? The boys weren't home yet. And so the text explicitly says that he waited, that he waited until his boys came home to deal with it. He doesn't get frustrated, and yet what does the text say about the boys? In contrast to Jacob's passivity, it says that they were furious, angry, rightly so. So the first characteristic that I see here in particular in the life of Jacob is that of passive parenting. So we have to ask ourselves some questions. Parents, those of us who want to be parents someday, are are you a passive parent? Am I a a passive parent? I must admit that of all four of these, this is where I fall most prey. I find myself most like Jacob in this area, in the area of passivity. I think it can reveal itself in, in numerous ways. Let me just suggest three ways that it may reveal itself. Number one, in not taking responsibility. In not taking responsibility for the actions of either your spouse or in particular for your kids, for their sins, for their shortcomings. Parents who are passive pass the buck. Parents who are passive 
pass the blame onto their kids, onto their uh, spouses, onto the school system, onto the society, and certainly there is blame to go around, but the buck stops with the parent. And so they are passive in taking responsibility. Secondly, it may reveal itself in a lack of initiative. It may reveal itself in a lack of initiative, maybe not initiating discipline when it's necessary, or not uh, taking the opportunity to initiate instruction in, in the positive sense of teaching what they should do and what they shouldn't do. That is taking those moments of learning and, and, and pouncing upon them as a parent. A lack of initiative. Just simply saying, and as a man I can say this, it's very easy just to say, my wife will handle that. My wife can handle that. Men, let's not do that. Third, uh, it can reveal itself in what I would call a delayed discipline. That is, as a parent, you do discipline your kids, but it's delayed. It's not in a timely manner. Chuck Swindoll, in his book on the life of Joseph, says these uh, appropriate words. He says, when parents are passive, they may eventually discipline, hear that, they may eventually discipline, but by then, the delayed reaction is often carried out in anger. Passivity waits and waits until finally, when it can wait no longer, it comes down with both feet. Folks, this is me sometimes. I struggle with this. I can be a passive parent, and by God's grace, may I not be. Secondly, not only do we see the first characteristic of unhealthy parenting is that of passivity, but it also reveals itself in playing favorites. That's our second bullet point. Jot that down, in playing favorites. Now, it's not as explicit in this text. It's very explicit in the text before, and it will become very explicit in the text later when we see, in particular, how Joseph deals with his kids because Joseph had favorites. Oh, he had favorites. One in particular, who was it? It was our guy, Joseph, but he also played favorite to Jacob, excuse me, to Benjamin, that is his second son born to Rachel. Now notice as we get back to this initial story, I had to ask the question, and the commentary has answered it for me, thankfully, why was it that Jacob was so passive? I mean, why was he passive? Why did he respond like this? Uh, I would suggest that he took this so passively because he was playing favorites again. He took this passively because it was Leah's daughter. Remember, he has two wives, and this daughter, his daughter, that we, the only one we know of, uh, was not from his beloved Rachel, but was from who? Was from Leah. And my suggestion to you is that he responded in such a passive way because he, in a subtle way, was playing favorites. Uh, Dr. Thomas Constable agrees. He says this. He says, contrast Jacob's great distress upon hearing that Joseph had apparently been killed. Remember later on in the story that he finds out that his beloved son had been killed apparently. So contrast his great distress there with his lack of response upon hearing that Dinah had been raped. He concludes by saying, he favored Rachel's children terribly. And that, I think, is exactly a part of his passive response, is he is playing favorites as a parent. If you don't believe me subtly in this text, look back a little bit in the chapters before, in the story when he goes out to meet Esau. Do you remember how he did it? Esau's coming. There's an army. He's fearful. And he divides his camp into three, three camps, essentially. Do you remember? The first camp, he sends uh, the, the maidservants and their sons, right? Remember, he had kids by maidservants. So he sends his not, you know, exactly his kids and their moms first. And then who does he send? Then he sends Leah and her kids second. And then who does he keep with him? Who does he keep last for safekeeping? He keeps Rachel 
and he keeps Joseph, and he keeps Benjamin. Now, let me ask you this. If that's not playing favorites, I don't know what is. I have a madman brother who's going to potentially wipe me out. Let's see, how do I want this to, okay, you kids and you wives, you're dispensable. You go first. Okay, now if they get through you, okay, then I'm going to send the second wave of kids and wives because I don't value you quite as much. And if they get through you, then they'll get to, he'll finally get to who? To me, right? And with my beloved kids and wife, he played favorites terribly. And so from time to time, it's worth asking as parents, do we play favorites? Can we fall into this temptation that Jacob often fell into? I think uh, it can reveal itself in several ways. So let me just suggest a few. Uh, Number one, it can reveal itself by spending more time with one child or one set of children more than the other. It can reveal itself by maybe we're more verbally affirming or uh, encouraging. We, we lift up those who we favor a little bit more than those who we may not. Uh, maybe it goes the opposite way. We're maybe more strict with the kids we don't favor as much or we express disappointment more about them than the ones that we favor. Maybe we allow the ones who we favor a little bit more freedom a little bit more lax, a little bit more gifts, a little bit more, okay, benefit of the doubt as a parent. I think there are a lot of ways that it can reveal itself, and those are just a few. So we've seen a couple characteristics. We've seen passivity. We've seen playing favorites. Let's move along now in our story and and read verses 13 through 29 because it gives us the third characteristic, and that is what I would call a lack of control. There is a lack of parental control certainly going on here. Let's read verses 13 through 18 as the story continues. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully. There's that word, deceitfully, as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. Here's what they said. They said to him, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who's not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you only on one condition, that you become like us by circumcising all of your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become uh, one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we will take our sister and we will go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and to his son Shechem. And so to continue the story, basically, uh, notice what we see here. Uh, They deal deceitfully. They have pushed aside their father. Notice, who is it that's now talking with these two men? Who is it that's now talking? Is Jacob talking? No, Jacob's not talking. Who's acting as a representative of the head of the family? It's the boys, not Jacob. The boys are taking initiative. What we see is that Jacob has either been pushed aside by his boys or he has passively stepped aside. He's not leading his family in these negotiations anymore. The boys have taken over. There's a lack of self-control. And so they deal deceitfully like, guess who? They're a chip off the old block, right? Their father dealt deceitfully. They deal deceitfully. They're going to be deceitful to their father. Later on in the lives of Joseph, there's lies going on left and right. Moving on in verses 19 through 24, what we see is that Hamor and his father, they go back. Shechem and his father Hamor, they go back and they basically convince the city, hey, these guys are, you know, we, we, can, we can intermarry. And, and, and note, if you read it, and we're not going to read it now, but they, they, they deal deceitfully too because they say, boy, we can get their land and we can get their stuff. Let's just intermarry with them, right? So they're not being exactly honest as well. So they convince the city, all of the males of the city, to be circumcised. 
Okay, that's what happens. And let's pick it up now in verse 25. Notice what happens in verse 25. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, that's an understatement, I'm sure. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers. Notice that. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city wherever their sister had been defiled. They seized the flocks and the herds and the donkeys and everything else in the city and out of their fields. They carried off all of their wealth and all of the women and the children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. And so as a result of Jacob's lack of control, Simeon and Levi go on a killing spree, and the rest of his boys, I don't know if Joseph is included in this or not. I suspect that he's not because of his young age, but regardless, they loot the city. Um, If this is not lack of control, I, I, I don't know what is. And so the second, the third, the third characteristic is lack of control, lack of control. Moving on, we see number four. This is kind of the capstone, and it epitomizes, I think, Jacob. The last characteristic is that of selfish parenting. Selfish parenting. Notice, notice how Jacob responds to the events of his sons. He says in verse 30, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have, brought, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they said, they replied, shall he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Now, let's go back and read these words and notice how many times Jacob uses the word me, my, or I. Notice this. You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Selfish parenting. He is more concerned about the ramifications of the sins of his children than the fact that they did something terribly wrong. One commentator by the name of Wynnum, he hits it right on the head. He says this, He does not condemn them for the massacre. Rather, he protests that the consequences of their action have have made him unpopular. Nor does he seem worried by his daughter's rape. He is only concerned for his own skin. And so parents and parents-to-be, how are we selfish? I think there are a myriad, a number of ways that We can be selfish. Let me just suggest a few. Number one, when we care more about how our kids' actions affect us than the actions themselves. I think that's what we see with with Jacob. When we care more about how what they do wrong or what they do right affect us than the merit of the actions themselves, then I think we are falling, and I fall, into selfish parenting. I don't know if you've been here or done this, or maybe you will, but when your kid is acting up, maybe they're at the grocery store and they start throwing a fit, and immediately I get angry, I can get frustrated, not because my kid is disobeying me and not, uh, not being uh, you know, the kind of kid that he, he, he or she should be. No, I'm more frustrated because everybody around me is looking at me. Whoa, what about that guy? How come, why is his kid freaking out? And, and I'm more concerned about my own reputation 
than I am about my kids' actions. Number two, you see your kids in terms of what they can do for you. You see your kids in terms of what they can do for you. There's someone who will love you. There's someone maybe who will need you. I think moms in particular fall into this category. We, we start to view our, terms in, in t- our kids in terms of what they can do for us rather than God wants us to do for them and through them, right? And we can fall into selfish parenting. There are many other ways, but those are my suggestions. So this is where we find ourselves. We've seen the, the background of Joseph. We've seen his brothers. We've seen his family uh, dynamic from this instance in Genesis 34. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, again, sums it up. He sums it up well. He says this. This background helps us understand the deception, the intrigue, the anger, the rebellion, the rivalry, the out-of-control jealousy that were rampant within the ranks of Jacob's boys all characteristics that had been displayed by their father. This was the home into which young Joseph was born, and it was a pretty pathetic environment in which to raise a boy. And that is Joseph, the prequel. And so I want to end my sermon now by playing the same game that we started before. There are some movie images that will come up on the screen, and I'm going to ask you the same question. What do these movies have in common, okay? Number one. Number one, let's share the first one. What do, what do these movies have in common? The Empire Strikes Back, right? Vintage Star Wars, right? Before they started messing them up with the new ones. Vintage Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Think about it. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Toy Story 2, maybe one of the better ones. Toy Story 2. What about the next one? The Terminator, right? Terminator 2, And the last one, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Okay, we can get rid of those images. What do all of these movies have in common, church? They are sequels. You guys are smart. They are sequels. That's right. And so by way of segue, I'm going to be out of town on vacation next week. Herb is going to fill in for me uh, once again. But what he's going to do is he's going to show us Joseph the sequel. We've seen Joseph the prequel, the life before the story. But what we're going to find out is he's going to preach a sermon from Hebrews chapter 11, looking back at the end of Joseph's life in Genesis chapter 50. So we've seen the before. We're going to see the after and what Joseph did in faith that honored God. I don't want to ruin the sermon, so that's, that's where we're going. That's where we're going to be. We've seen the before. Next week, we're going to see the after, and then starting the week after, we're going to get right into the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. So let's pray, and then we'll be done. Let's pray together. In fact, let's do this. Let's stand. You guys go ahead and stand, and we're going to pray, and then you'll be dismissed. So let's stand together, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the morning. We thank you that we can come with our hearts heavy and light, with, uh, full of joy and full of sorrow. Uh, Father, with all of our requests, with all of our praises, with all of our concerns, and that we can bear our soul to you. Thank you for the reminder of what Dan said, that you hear us. You hear us when we cry out to you. What an amazing God you are, that through faith in Jesus Christ, you look past our sin because it's been paid for on the cross when we place our faith in him. And we have access now to the throne of of grace. We have access now to the heavenly throne room where Jesus Christ himself intercedes for us in which the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us intercedes for us with words that cannot be spoken. We have God himself in the Son and in the Spirit praying to you, Father, on our behalf. 
What an amazing God you are. And so we lift our request. Uh, we lift uh, the sermon series up to you. We pray that you would help us to learn all of the life lessons that we need, whether we're parents, whether we're not, as we look at the, the, this amazing life of Joseph. Teach us from your inspired word and from his godly life, we pray. And all of God's people agreed and said, amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.